Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art produced for WGXC by New Adventures in Sound Art. This show is a monthly program sharing the performances and installations that take place at the NASA North Media Arts Centre in South River, Ontario, Canada. Today we're going to spend some time with media artist Gordon Monahan and tour his installation, Kinetic Transmissions. It just opened here in uh, South River, and uh, on that uh, opening launch he gave a guided tour of the installation and also shared some documentation of his other works. We're going to uh, listen in to that and also tour the sound world of the installation. So thanks everyone for coming out tonight. Um, I'll just talk a little bit about this piece, um, particularly from a technical perspective. Um, it comes from the idea of uh, deconstructing the audio system, um, which um, can begin uh, with actually uh, looking at a loudspeaker and, and figuring out what is a loudspeaker and, and how can it uh, be uh, used in different ways beyond what it was originally designed to function as. And I've done some different pieces for over many years using loudspeakers as sound producing objects beyond just being a, a, a speaker cabinet in a corner that you ignore. Uh, I won't get too much into those pieces, um, but this is a sort of another series, uh, another a piece in that series of of deconstructing the loudspeaker. Um, so what's happening here is, um, if you take a look at a loudspeaker, it's, con it, it, it's constructed from a magnet and a, a uh, copper wound coil that is uh, sent electrical signals from an amplifier so that the coil um, moves within the electromagnetic field of the fixed magnet, and then of course that coil is is uh, part of a cone of the speaker that pushes the sound out towards us. So the essential el electrical elements of the loudspeaker are the magnet and the coil, and uh, and the um, electrical impulses sent to the coil. So the same thing as a motor. A motor consists of a shaft with magnets attached to it in a field of coils that are sent electrical signals. So it turns out if you find, uh, oh, oh, the other thing about loudspeakers is uh, you probably know, you know, a speaker is usually rated to be eight ohms or four ohms, which um, is the electrical term that describes the resistance or the impedance of the speaker. So therefore, uh, audio amplifiers are designed to send out audio signals in electrical impulses to resistances between four and eight ohms, typically. So if you find a motor uh, that's within that rough range, um, then you could hook that motor up to the loudspeaker output of the amp, and theoretically, you should be able to send audio signals into the motor. Um, 
So these motors are all the same. There's 10 of them. And they happen to be about 1.8, 1.9 ohms. So if you take three or four of these motors together and string them, wire them together, you get eight ohms. And indeed, if you hook that up to the output of an amplifier and turn it up really loud, you need a lot of power because these motors are not designed to do what I'm using them for, obviously. That uh, they actually reproduce the audio signal sent into them. And um, so what's happening here is that there are uh, 10 motors. Um, they're wired up into three channels of audio. So uh, of the 10 motors, there's four of them grouped in one group, and then two other groups of three. So I'm dealing with collectively six ohms to eight ohms resistance or impedance of those groups of loudspeakers. Uh, so I'm sending out actually electronic synthesized sound files that I recorded on a, uh, a vintage 1970s Buchla synthesizer, if that means anyone to any of you. Um, and uh, so the, all of the sound files themselves are actually electronically produced. It's electronic synthesizer sounds, which um, normally you need a loudspeaker to listen to. Now, if you think about most music instruments, you can listen to acoustically or amplified. Uh, electric, electronic synthesizers, you can't listen to unless you have a loudspeaker. You can look at it, but in this case, we're actually hearing electronic sounds without any loudspeakers. Um, that's sort of saying it in a um, partially um, incorrect way. I mean, I'm generalizing. You don't see any speakers. But actually what this is, is a large deconstructed loudspeaker or a system that is a deconstruction of a large loudspeaker. Um, and you can hear some of those electronic sounds. Right now it's, it's, it's faded down uh, because there's a motion sensor. Um, so if, you're, if we're not standing in the middle of the space, it's on a program that automatically fades out if there's no one in the space. So when we do walk in there, it's going to fade in uh, and it'll be a bit louder. Um, now the other thing that's happening is um, every object, all of the ten motors are all playing the same sound at the same time. So it's a mono uh, system that's uh, spread out into 10 channels. So it's mono 10 channel, if you, if you know what I'm saying from a technical audio perspective. And the other thing is that those 10 channels are all reproducing the same sound with different results. So, you know, we're hearing that shaking sound over there now, which would sound completely different coming out of these two suspended drums, for instance. Uh, so it's one sound uh, making many other sounds from the same sound. So that's the other sort of uh, abstract conceptual way of, of thinking of the piece. Um, yeah, so um, by the way, if there's any, any questions at all, yes. I just want to say. Yes. So the one that's shaking. Yeah. <coughs> 
Is a separate sound, or all ten will build on the one that's happening right now? Uh, no, they're not feeding off of each other. Okay. They're producing whatever sound they're producing is being activated by the original sound coming out of the computer. Okay. So the computer is basically like a tape recorder playing back the, the original sound files, and that's being distributed to each of the motors, and so each motor is receiving the same sound, you know? Like uh, the sound is just being sent out to 10 different, it's like if you have 10 different speakers all playing the same thing, that's basically what's happening. But the sound is different because each object is different acoustic property. So exactly, what, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So some of, the, some of the motors are actually just kind of creating a mechanical sound. Whereas some of the other motors are more or less reproducing as in some level of low fidelity. Reproducing. What was the thing about the three channels? Yeah, so, well, there's three amplifiers. So oh. right now there's only one visible, but there's another amp underneath. Okay, thanks. So in order to get enough power to go out to drive the motors to the point where they're actually doing with what I want them to do. Um, you need like 500 watts uh, f for every group of three motors. Uh, you know, like your typical home stereo will have like 20 or 30 watts or something. So this is, these amps are much bigger than that. Uh, and all they're like doing the is like... The fan you're hearing is one of them. <laughs> the fan yeah, one of the fans is like... Cooling down now because it's it's changing it's changing sound files. Uh, oh, and the new sound file is probably much quieter than the other ones. There are some sound files are, are quieter than others. So how did you go about choosing which objects you wanted to activate with the sounds? That was kind of random. Uh -huh. um, I mean, I knew that um, drums would reproduce. Mm -hmm. Like if you. These, these two suspended drums uh -huh. have the wires c coming out of the skin. Mm -hmm. So I knew that that was going to reproduce the sound mm -hmm. fairly effectively. Yeah. So I kind of said, okay, I, I want to get right. some drums. That's what drums do. That's yeah. going to work. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then, and then also there's a, a wire going across, which mm -hmm. is actually a piano wire. Uh -huh. yeah. And you see on the far end, there's a motor attached to that yeah. wire. Mm -hmm. So that motor is sending the sound into the wire, oh. and then these things that are suspended from the wire are reproducing it. Right. Not very loudly, but mm -hmm. if you get close, you can hear sound coming out of that gong yeah. and out of this tin yeah, foil. Yeah, they are thing. really, I haven't been able to hear those ones in particular. It's very subtle. Yeah, the shells yeah. and yeah. the goblets there and the yeah. light bulbs, the sort of things that we don't think of as musical instruments are the things which intrigue yeah. me the most. Well, you know, it's been discussed and proven many times that everything is musical instrument. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, yeah. I'm just reacting. Yeah. I'm joking partly. Yeah, but right, right, I'm right. Being sarcastic, but that's been discussed for oh, many years. I'm sure. But yes. I, I agree with what you're saying. You don't normally think of a light bulb as a yeah. musical instrument. Yeah. Um, Do you hear anything? Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. What? You do hear it, Nisa. Yes, yep, yes, yep, yep. exactly, it, yeah. You see it all. It can be a so. sound object, yes. Yes, exactly, exactly. But its main and original purpose is not. Yes, right. Right, yes. Yes. right. 
Uh, they're DC. They're DC. They're um, either six or twelve volts. Yeah. Um, they'll run on six or twelve. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. They were uh, designed. Uh, I bought. I, I bought a whole bunch of them because when I, I had some sitting around. These mm -hmm. same exact ones, and when I started working on this, I found that they were like perfect motors, and I tracked them down from. There's a surplus store in Montreal. Addison Electronics, and they have like an unlimited supply of them. And so I ordered. Um, they're only they're only like two ninety five. <laughs> so I ordered like two hundred of them because they're like I'm I'm gonna do a lot of pieces with this. I don't want to run out of these motors. Two hundred motors for three dollars each. Okay, that'll be my lifetime supply, you know. And they they came brand new. And the date on them is like 1972, <laughs> made in Japan, uh, and they call them toy motors. So they were probably made for little um, toy motors. And what powers the motors? So those electric? Yeah. Uh, well, well, they're wired. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you, I mean, if you think of the wiring, mm -hmm. I could I could draw it out for you. But so you take the three motors. Yeah. They each have two ohms. So you come in. Output speaker output on one side, uh -huh. and then you tie the up the second terminal down to that one, and then you daisy chain, and then the last one you bring back. So you oh, got okay. you got the two outputs plus and minus from the mm -hmm. from the amp, and then they're strung together so okay. they're all receiving the same. Oh, okay. And collectively, they're they're six ohms. Mm -hmm. So. Just wondering if nobody's standing in the middle. Yeah. It, it seems like we're getting kind of. Um, Random objects activating. Do they rotate, or is it random? Or um, well, they different objects will be activated by different frequencies, and so each of the sound files kind of produces different frequencies. So sometimes one or two objects would be much more active when one particular sound file is playing, right. and less active when another is. So is that so, the bass and the treble, or is it? Yeah, it's bass and treble, and if it's sound moving up and down, and some of the sounds are a bit louder than others. and So in that regard, the sound does move around, but not by uh, panning, you know, left and right, but by uh, the type of sound that's being played causes that. So the activation of the motors, yeah. is it like oscillating back and forth? Yeah, they they tremble. Yeah. So okay, they don't so. they don't turn. The right. the motors are obviously designed to spin. I mean that's what yeah. a motor does. But in this case, um, when you have uh, an amplifier and they label it plus and minus, we tend to think of that as like positive and ground, yeah. which would be a DC yeah. uh, current. But it, it, that's not the case. It, the output from an amplifier is AC. It's, yeah, it's so modulating it's plus and minus from ground in the middle. Yeah. Um, so that causes the motors just to go like this because yeah. it's constantly so, oscillating yeah. between plus so and minus. It's not spinning between a complete cycle. It's not turning. But I guess the amount that it would turn is dependent upon the volume from the yeah. signal. Depending, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So the DC motors just go back and forth like this. Would an AC motor? 
been at Frequency? Or? Well, that's a good, good question. Yep. Did you, have you tried? I have. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that when I get there. Because you think it because it's designed to turn with AC, right. isn't it? Yeah, so then it should go right. whatever frequency right. yes. you're able to. Yes. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> because you, and, and yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you don't run it through any kind of diode to step. No, no. The con the convenience of it is that um, it works without any additional electronics. Right. It's just speaker wire. Yeah. So. I realize it might not be your aim, but have you ever uh, attached an object and then heard something familiar from maybe an audio file that you're familiar with or a song that you're playing coming out of an object that you didn't really expect it? to produce kind of something similar? Well, I suppose that when I first started working on it, you discover it, you know, like you, you stumble upon things that are unexpected. Because when I first started working on the idea, I tried it with long, these long piano wires. And I, I worked with that. And I'll, I'll show you some videos in a minute of the first projects I did with this system. And then I, you know, and then, you think about that, and you realize, oh, I can do some other things. So I did, I did this, and I did a few other projects. Um, each of them unique in their own way that the system's being used and applied to create these pieces. But uh, so yeah, you do, and 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 you know, you do discover these things by um, partly stumbling upon them, but partly trying something out and, and being open to recognizing, ah, that's, that's interesting, you know, um, I should investigate that some more. So it's part of the sort of creative process of um, not only um, experimenting with things, but knowing when to recognize <coughs> that something is potentially interesting that could be developed into something else, you know? Like if you're not ready to discover um, new um, surprises, like you were saying, being surprised by something, and then realizing, ah, you know, there's an idea. And then that could lead you on a two or three year project <laughs> that consumes your, which is great because that's what you have to do when you're an artist too, so. After uh, Gordon uh, introduced the work, the audience had a chance to wander through the installation. I thought we would uh, follow along and have a listen for a few minutes. I assume so you're like saying a, like a membrane because something has to move the air. 
Yes, for you to hear it. Yes. So it's like this. Yeah. Drums. A diaphragm. Dia yeah, that has a lot of yeah. surface area to move through and where. It's designed to do that. And yes. But so not necessarily one specific pitch. They tend to be kind of yeah. inharmonic, noisy membranes with their own kind of weird resonant frequencies they add on top. Right. So that adds yeah. a fair, it's like a weird little filter. Right. You're tuned to Making Waves on WGXC Wavefarm. We're listening to audio from the opening of the Kinetic Transmissions exhibition at the NASA North Media Arts Centre in South River, Canada. Next, uh, the audience convened with uh, Gordon Monahan in the Media Art Lounge, and he played documentation of his works, including some that used similar techniques to kinetic transmissions. We'll listen in on the discussion and tune in to the audio portion of the videos he showed. If you go to YouTube and Gordon Monahan, M-O-N-A-H-A-N, uh, and you'll see uh, examples of uh, the works and uh, that he's talking about. Also, his website has pictures and descriptions there, and that's uh, uh, GordonMonahan.com. Was in 2010. I did a piece for piano um, in Warsaw, Poland. Um, that was for a contemporary music festival in Warsaw that goes back to the Cold War years in the late 50s. Um, okay, I'm going off on a tangent a little bit, but during the, the Cold War period, one of the weapons that was used between the East and West was culture. Like, here, over here in Canada, we don't really think about that too much, but I lived in Berlin for a long time, and this was very much discussed that, that West Berlin, which was an island in the middle of East Germany, yeah, right. was very much subsidized, particularly by the Allied Western forces, including or directed by the United States, to 
fund culture like crazy, you know. So the complete opposite from what's been going on in the, in the States for the last 40 years, which was to defund culture. Yeah. There, one of the big policies in the Cold War was to throw as much money at culture as you possibly could in West Germany in order to <coughs> kind of show off because they knew the East Germans were watching. And they knew that the East Germans could not possibly compete with the Western mm -hmm. Germans because they didn't have the money and they didn't have the freedom to kind of throw these big shows and all the lights and all the, the media that goes with it. Um, but one of the things that was happening uh, in the 50s as well was uh, to get over the um, fascism of the Second World War. Uh, the idea was to also put a lot of money into uh, education and um, to uh, educate people in, in philosophy and the arts and culture and, and all of those things. And um, contemporary art was, was a big part of it. And uh, so contemporary music festivals were um, becoming a big thing in the 50s in Western Europe. And the Eastern Europeans thought, well, we need to do this too. So the Warsaw Autumn was one of the festivals that started. And they were also bringing in Western composers, um, Stockhausen and Boulez and Cage and all that. Um, so it's kind of an interesting, interesting from the political <coughs> standpoint. Anyway, Warsaw Autumn. In 2010, they were celebrating the 200th anniversary of the birth of Frederick Chopin. So that was the year of Chopin in Poland. And I was contacted by the festival to do this commission. And the one stipulation was it had to be uh, to do with Chopin. And so I thought, well, I'll take these motors and attach them to long piano wires. And we'll put a piano, an old piano outdoors and I'll send, I'll, I'll recompose Chopin's music. So I took MIDI sound files, which you can download on the internet for free, it's open source. Um, and so I, I imported all these MIDI sound files of these Chopin piano pieces, and then I re, um, I played them backwards and transposed things, sped them up, deleted parts, doubled other things. So I created these new decomposed uh, repertoire of Chopin and then that, that's what plays into this piano. So. <coughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
big were those motors compared to these ones? Exactly the same. Really? Yeah. They looked so much bigger because mm -hmm. of the camera angle. Yeah. 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 Okay. How'd you attach the wires to the soundboard? Drill through it and oh yeah, and then you uh, underneath uh, put some eye screws into the legs and put a turnbuckle on and tighten it up. <laughs> the pianos that I use are basically junk. Right. Like yeah. even though that was a grand piano, it was never going to be reconditioned, never restored. It was probably had a cracked uh, steel frame. Oh yeah. And um, so when I do different installations of this piece and variations of it. Uh, I've done quite a few. Uh, you typically just, uh, nowadays you just look on Kijiji, who's giving away a free piano, yeah. right? <laughs> what happened when it rained? It just gets wet. The, well, the, the, the wires, uh, pardon? Does the sound change? Well, um, for instance, uh, in a piece where there's a combination of wind and the piano recordings, uh, the wind sounds won't be activated if there's uh, drops of water on the wires. Um, but aside from that, it doesn't change the sound. No, really. Yeah. You just have to keep the motors dry. Yeah. No, they just get wet. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I I do have a piece. Uh, this piece running. It's been running now for five years outdoors at. Uh, in Prince Edward County at the Drake Devonshire oh, really? Hotel. Yeah. And I've had to go down there and replace motors over time. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been running now f for the last two years. And I, I, I put a little um, kind of plastic corrugated piece over where the motors are mm -hmm. just to keep the direct um, snow and rain mm -hmm. off, off the motors. But yeah, it's um, it keeps going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. that's good to know. Mm -hmm. You can do it. Can handle the winter. Yeah, you can do. Yeah. What's it playing at the Drake? <coughs> Pardon me. What's it playing? Is it that? Is at the Drake in? Oh, the, the same Chopin pieces Chopin. as well as pieces by Henry Cowell. Mm -hmm. So um, Henry Cowell was an um, American composer from California, <coughs> early twentieth century. And he was um, historically very significant. He was one of John Cage's teachers. He was also uh, one of the first people to introduce uh, third world ethnic music to American or North American uh, contemporary culture. Um, oh, I know you want to move on another one, but I'm just wondering why you did MIDI. It said MIDI files and re-edited. Why didn't you take like Chopin recordings or? Well, okay, these aren't just the MIDI. They're, then the MIDI files play piano. So, so um, I re I took the MIDI files because that gives me the original note by note composition. Uh huh. And then I can re-edit that to create new pieces that sound like Chopin a little mm -hmm. bit but aren't. Uh huh. And then I play that through a software piano. And record that. So yeah. then I have new piano recordings. But what about like a gramophone records like version of? I could have done that. I could okay. have done that. Yeah. I chose to, in order to make it something original. Yeah. Okay. I got right. It. All right. Because otherwise you're just playing Chopin stuff. Yeah. Which is a bit more like um, 
a museum exhibit or something, yeah. uh -huh. yeah. or whatever. You wanted your little this, signature this on it. This made it a, a unique uh, recording. So okay. recording that related, that came from Chopin. Yeah. Or was originated from the Chopin material. Um, so then I went on, uh, because I did, did the piece in um, 2013 in the <coughs> Czech Republic, and um, in a town called Brno, Czech Republic, uh, which was the home of, um, who's the really famous Czech composer? Uh, Janacek. Janacek. So uh, that was where Janacek ran the conservatory. And he had invited Henry Cowell, who, when he was young, was a really famous pianist, who was an amazing technical virtuoso, playing his own piano compositions, and created a big sensation. This was in the 1910s and 20s. So he was on tour in Europe, and Janacek invited him to spend some time in Brno. And, uh, uh, Cowell was very much influenced by Janicek because Janicek had been uh, creating this, um, uh, how would you say it, a, a group of uh, international European contemporary music composers, uh, organizing them into a, um, a society, let's say. And Cowell wanted to do the same thing back in the States. So Cowell spent some time there learning from Janicek and then went back to the U.S. and started the New Music Quarterly, I think, and did a lot of other significant things to organize contemporary music in the States. And uh, so when they were doing this festival in, in Czech Republic, they asked me to do some pieces recomposing Janicek and Henry Cowell. So I won't show you the video of that particular one, but I'll show you a version then that I did I did it in North Bay mm. <laughs> in 2014. Was that part part of the festival of, on the lake? Yes. Or frozen something? Or? Yeah, ice falls. Okay. Yeah. In February of 2014. Wow, that was cold. <laughs> it wasn't too bad. It was February, but it was a bit of a warm oh. for a few days. Don't get many warm Until it got really cold. Yeah. <laughs> but this is, uh, in this version I use Chopin oh. and the Henry Cowell. And then there was a lot of aeolian tones caused by the wind. Mm -hmm. You're getting like really good at piano. Destroying pianos and whatnot. You like yeah. very comfortable with that. I've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> um, much longer than this series of pieces. Oh, okay. I did the first one in 1984. I was only using wind. This one you'll see later on after I hook it all up that it's using both wind and the playback of the sound files.
And now as, as the wind starts to fade out, you start to hear the piano notes. Recently, I had this idea to take this system and then reamplify it. So, send sounds into the motors, have them suspended from long wires, and then put pickups on those wires and feed them into a, a sound, an amplified sound system. <coughs> I'm still developing this, this piece a little bit, but... I guess we could turn the sound up a little bit. Is there a control for that? system but there's also this kinetic aspect to the sound the sound is activating these motors to move around so that becomes part of the piece more mm -hmm. let's say and then it's amplified so you're getting this bigger sound so it's kind of deconstructing the audio and then reconstructing it again almost like a feedback loop <laughs> yeah and like kind of a live processing feedback loop is yeah. Um, Are you about like, have you tried driving the uh, output of those pickups back into the inputs of the motors? I haven't, but I've, uh, that's on my list. Yeah, <laughs> it would need a, like some heavy duty limiting to mm -hmm. prevent the feedback. Squealing, right? <laughs> 
But you could also well, yeah, you could, turning your amp down. But yeah, but you could also uh, you could also pitch shift it maybe mm -hmm. to prevent um, direct feedback frequencies, right? Right. Yeah, I did something similar with uh, wires, like running current right through wires. Okay. And using magnets underneath. Yeah. And it was kind of cool because the more the current you put through the wires, it would heat up and change the pitch of the wires, and that was mm -hmm. a good way of doing it, sort of analog. So that the pitch varies yes. through the feedback system, so like this, but it's not you're not driving current through anything other than those motors. That's not yeah. really heat up. But it's similar, and yeah. and and uh, mm -hmm. it's very much uh, the system that Alvin Lucier used for yeah. music on a lot. That's what we that's we I had done with uh, you know Garnet Willis friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, we had done a couple of things. He did that sound sculpture that's up at uh, that Banff that's hanging in the music department, and we did a couple of versions I of that. See. And I, did one first with them that was like built off this instrument I did where we put the wire like the same thing put current through the wire yeah and turn the wire into the off of the what kind of current are you putting into it like it's audio yeah. amp same thing amplifier amplifier yeah, like okay same signals yeah less like lower power amps are you feeding an, like an oscillation into the amp to, or are you just you're just using the feedback loop just to create feedback the, loop yeah and the the fun part about it is that as the you put more current through the wire, the wire heats up and yes. changes pitch. Right, right. So and, that, yeah. And then you, um, how long is the wire? Uh, we did a, a couple of different versions. Garnet did it through pulley, so it would have different sections with different points. And I think we did one, uh, I had a, on an instrument that was sort of a tetrahedron, about 40 strings, <coughs> all fairly short, like a couple of feet like this. And then we did one, on, uh, AGO where it was like a star shape of wires that went through pulleys. So mm -hmm. each section was slightly different and magnets underneath each section. So it had a bunch of different um, spots for resonant frequencies and then just a weight on the other end. So mm -hmm. to fix, so each string would change and different parts of the sections of the string would resonate as it became feeding back with other elements. So we had like four things uh, four wires like that running into each other. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one you did for NASA, wasn't it? I think mm -hmm. for one of the sound travels. Yeah. In the, the church on the island, if you remember we had that. Mm -hmm. When was that? Oh, I think that was Garnet's piece. Oh, was, oh it was just that was the, Yeah, oh, that okay, was his version. Yeah, that was his sort of next step of the thing. Was it on a big, uh, like, auto harp soundboard? Yeah. Yeah, which he called Cluster Flux. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, he went out to the band and worked at the piano uh, uh, repair shop back when they had one and built like a harpsichord-like frame and, and soundboard with a whole bunch of strings that again did the same thing. They became like one circuit for audio amp with pickups underneath. Mm -hmm. And it was just like a feedback loop into itself. And then you using a limiter to... <coughs> no. No? No, not at all. You're just it's, using the volume on the amp to, yeah. to set? Yeah, it went through a mixer just so you could control the volume of the pickups and, yeah. and just, but it didn't really need a oh. limiter, partly because it, um, it had that self-correcting thing of every time it cranked up in volume, okay. the pitch it would change pitch. and it would move to a different note. Okay. So that would sort of be a self-limiting kind of mechanism within it. I see. Interesting. So I'll show one more. Uh, in this series, which I think is probably the last variation.
Fluxus artist, one of the founders of Fluxus, Henning Christiansen, who's from Denmark. He's passed away now. Uh, there's a museum on an island where he lived in Denmark, and that's where his archive is. So for the opening of that museum, they brought in a, a group of artists to work with his um, materials to create new pieces. So I took recordings that he had made and uh, processed them and and kind of uh, um, just mix them a little bit and, and compress them and, and then um, so they drive these motors which are the same motors as these ones um, but in this case they each have this sort of antennae with objects that relate specifically to what Henning did symbols of from pieces that he had done and so all the sounds that we hear, <clears throat> and then they're mounted on wooden shelves, so the shelves themselves become the amplifying boards for, for hearing the sounds. So again, there's no speakers involved.
So that's uh, also like this interesting situation where the audio system is also kind of deconstructed because the computer is controlling the water drops using MIDI file composition, um, but then the computer is not connected to the audio system because there's a space of about six feet where the water drops come out of the valves and land on the objects that are then amplified with contact pickups and connected to the mixer and the PA system. So there's a gap of six feet of airspace between the computer MIDI system and the audio system and it's connected by drops of water. <laughs> and how long did that take to get to set it up? Yes. Not that long, a few days. Do you days. have to adjust after? Like are you or do you just go? You're kind of adjusting straight? as you go. Kind of as you go? That's um, I made the piece in about six weeks. And I mean, I thought about it for a lot longer. Yeah. And then I had about six weeks to build it all in my studio. Um, everything gets wet, you know, like that's the other thing. I was gonna ask what kind of a space was it in and how did you make sure that things didn't flood? Well, by chance, mm -hmm. uh, they had this gallery space that happened to have a concrete floor that was coated with a kind of rubberized oh. Like a drain too? No, there's no drain, but you use a mop. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, so Because not like, that much, like you get puddles yeah. of water. Yeah. But if you, in one day, you might use 20 liters of water or something. So yeah. it's not like you, like you wouldn't do it here. No, no. <laughs> but you need a, a waterproof floor. Right. Yeah. Or you put plastic down. Yeah. I've done it other times on wooden floors. Or outside, you could probably do it outside. Yeah, yeah but, but then you're dealing with other issues where you're exposing all the, um, the whole system to the outdoors. Oh, okay, so but you could, work. Yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but um, so you know, you contain the water. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done versions of this piece in a live performance <laughs> on a stage. It's a bit smaller. We only use six objects. Mm. Um, and there we use uh, this plastic, just pl plastic yeah. um, that contains, and then some of it splashes over, but mm -hmm. you bring up mops at the yeah. end of the show and <laughs> wipe it up. It's like someone spilling a bottle of water. Oh, okay. You know. When you perform these, like um, I had seen the water one at the music gallery. Um, yeah, the um, boiling water. Yeah, I know, which I saw in that video yeah. too. Um, I'm wondering, like, for example, in, in the water drip one, yeah. um, if you're doing a performance, is there like um, a pattern that you sometimes want to get away from, which is like start the water slowly, speed it up, yeah, and then like is that too, almost too logical, or how do you get around, how do you deal with that issue? Well, uh, see, as I was building this piece uh, in my studio back, that was in the year two thousand, and I was you know it was very complicated from like all the wiring and 24 channels of water drops and then 24 channels of pickups and it's just and then you're programming and you're fixing things that are breaking and and then it started raining outside and I have a metal roof you know in my studio 
and then the water is just pouring over the edge of the studio and you're just hearing this percussion in reality I'm thinking well all I really need is a roof and pour water on a roof and I'll get something similar right you don't even need a computer you don't have to program it. just pour water on a roof you know so um, that's how I've dealt with it actually um, I have done I did do other pieces where I was using this live in a performance and I had layers of rhythms and I would play the theremin and the theremin would interact and call up uh, layers of rhythms that would play over top of each other depending on the oh, frequency okay. of the theremin. So that's one way of, of getting a kind of uh, sort of control over something that could build and subside and you could and add in other things on top of that. Yeah, because I'm kind of, I guess I'm getting at is kind of like, is there a way to have a score yeah. for a, such weird sounds, you know? And, yeah. yeah, well, you you can either have like total control or you can have quasi-control, or then you can have no control. Uh -huh. I mean, uh, I prefer, like that particular piece was just done the way I did it because I thought it was cool the way you could control the drops to actually create these pretty, uh, controlled rhythmic yeah. um, pieces, right? But it's not like that's anything new, you know, in terms of the end up music, ending musical result, right? That was Gordon Monahan discussing several of his installations using motorized systems to produce sounds. The recording was made during the opening of his exhibit, Kinetic Transmissions, and which is uh, open at Mesa in South River until January 6th. And uh, that concludes this edition of Making Waves. I've been your host, Darren Copeland. Making Waves is on the air the second Saturday of every month on WGXC Wavefarm and is also available on a variety of podcast sources, including Stitcher. Making Waves is produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. Thank you for listening.